Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Seeing that picture of the saints gathered, uh, you know, makes me think about the the church that this uh, book was probably written to, you know, small group of believers gathered. They would have been Jewish believers as we had talked about. And here, uh, the writer of Hebrews starts out the passage by saying, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now for us, we might be like, well, of course. I mean, when you ask a question in church, the answer is always Jesus, right? So consider Jesus. Why would he make that statement up front, because what has he been doing since the beginning? I mean, since the beginning, we have been considering Jesus. Jesus conquered death and the devil and sin, as we've learned about in the first couple of chapters. Jesus created all things. Jesus is our helper. So why does the the writer of Hebrews then now say, again, consider Jesus? And the word consider there is, uh, you know, really not just like, oh, um, you know, just ponder that. It's really consider carefully Jesus. Understand fully Jesus. The reason he said that is he was, he was probably concerned that this small church of Jewish Christians was giving too much attention to another individual who we read as we went through, as mentioned a number of times, giving too much attention to Moses. And so the first thing we want to look at before we consider Jesus is why, why was Moses such a big deal to these first century Christians, this small group of believers? Why did he have to make this point, consider Jesus? Well, because Moses was a big deal to them. And it's difficult for us to kind of understand this, particularly if someone is unfamiliar with Jewish history to grasp the significance of this reverence that the people had for Moses. I mean, there are times we might have reverence for someone who, 
who lived years ago, reference a founding father of our nation or uh, a great theologian or historian. They might be referenced, but but we don't, we don't hold one individual up to the degree that the Jews held Moses. Moses was esteemed as the greatest of all the Hebrews and even considered by them as the greatest man of history. Why was he considered that in that place? Well, I'm just going to briefly hit some of those reasons. He was divinely chosen for an epic task. If you remember from studying in the book of Exodus, when all the firstborn Jews were commanded to be killed in Egypt, his life was preserved by being rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. You've probably read that in the Bible reading plan here recently. God personally called Moses at the burning bush. Many of you are called to do different things. As far as I know, none of you uh, encountered the Lord uh, at a burning bush telling you what to do. So he obviously was divinely chosen. It was unique. He was also the deliverer of his people. He was given incomparable and unparalleled power. So again, as we've been reading in our Bible reading plan, Moses was given the ability to turn the Nile into blood, send plagues of frogs, gnats, and flies, and, and other things. Certainly, uh, the last plague that was sent out was actually uh, the, the, the firstborn of every household died. The firstborn son of every household died unless the blood of a lamb was put over the doorpost. So even the staff of Moses was used to part the Red Sea as people passed through, and the staff that he used was used to hit a rock, and water was coming out so that they could drink. So he was a deliverer of his people. He was also uh, served as Israel's greatest prophet. God communicated indirectly through various other means with different prophets, but God communicated directly to Moses. If we look at Numbers 12, it says, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Clearly and not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. In fact, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, he saw the backside of the Lord. And then when he came off the mountain, his face glowed. Moses was second only to Adam in direct communication with God. Second only to Adam. So there's, there's a an intimacy that Moses experienced that was unique from everybody else in, of all the Jews in all the generations. Moses had this unique relationship. He was also the lawgiver. To the Jews, the law was the greatest thing in the world. Moses was the conduit for the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law and the sacrificial system. And everything that came from the Jewish religion was often referenced in the New Testament as the law of Moses. So there's even more. He was a great historian. He authored the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Moses was also called the most humble man ever. In Numbers 12.3, it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And one other thing, he was, a, he was an intercessor, like a priestly intercessor. He wasn't necessarily called a priest, but he certainly would intercede for his people. 
After he came off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the people of God were sacrificing, you know, a golden calf. They were sacrificing to a golden calf, and Moses was like, no, and he goes and he prays before the Lord, and because of his prayers before the Lord, the people of God were not done away with. And then the people of God also grumbled again when a a number of men went into the promised land to spy it out. They came back with a report and most of the men were scared and they're like, no, we can't go in. There's really big guys there. We're going to get beaten. But Joshua and Caleb said, no, we need to have faith to go. And the people of God started to grumble and complain and they didn't have faith and God wanted to be done with them. But Moses interceded for them. And even Moses, when he died, God buried him in an unmarked grave. And this is what we read about Moses. Since then, this is in Deuteronomy 34. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Now Moses wasn't sinless, but he was faithful and he was greatly admired by God's people. I mean, even these New Testament Christians would have known about or heard about the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured, who was present. One of the people who was present was Moses. So Moses was a big deal. That's why Moses was a big deal. As they grew up, these believers, as they grew up, they would have heard story after story. What we did in just like five minutes there, they would have learned all the stories and they would have even memorized large portions, if not the whole, of the, the first five books of the Bible. So Moses was a big deal to them. But what the, the writer of Hebrews realized was that there, there was likely going to be an overestimation about Moses, an undue attention given to Moses. And, and so he wants them to consider Jesus. Now we too can have an undue attention to things that aren't Christ. We can have undue attention to certain leaders or government systems we can have undue attention to our traditions and place them in prominence. Or we can have undue attention or affection or uh, trust in our tribe. What do I mean by our tribe? Well, those are the people, not just maybe the people that I hang out with uh, most or could be the people, but these are the people who everything that I agree with, they agree with too. That's my tribe. Not just the people even in my broader church, but this is my tribe. We can give undue attention to those things and other things. And ultimately what this writer is saying, don't give undue attention to anything other than Jesus. Even though Moses was faithful and he's an example for us to follow, he is, he is not Jesus because Jesus is a bigger deal than Moses. 
Jesus is a bigger deal than Moses. That's why he says, consider Jesus. And this is what he calls, what he references about Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle. I know oftentimes we can think about, well, the, the apostles, those were the guys that Jesus commissioned to go share the gospel with other people. I don't, I don't know that I heard about Jesus being one of those apostles. No, when it's referring to apostle here, the word apostle is messenger. So someone who shares a message. They pro, the apostles proclaim the message of the gospel in the book of Acts, right? Jesus is obviously proclaiming a message, He was a messenger of the Lord, but he both proclaimed the the coming of the kingdom and he himself was living out that message. He was living out, his life was also the message. His life and death and resurrection are the message and he's also called the high priest. So the apostle and high priest of our confession. So meaning he's the the high priest, and we're going to learn more about that as we study later on in the book of Hebrews. But what a priest does is he goes to, uh, to make uh, intercession for the people, make sacrifices for the people, talk to God for the people. But Jesus not only talks to God for us, Jesus is able to speak to men for God. He's able to speak to us for God, but then on the flip side, he's also able to intercede to God for men, for us. So Jesus is the ultimate chosen one. Look in verse two, it says, so he's the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful. He he faithfully and joyfully became incarnate, perfectly becoming human body and mind. He faithfully submitted his power and his presence and his knowledge. He faithfully submitted those to the will of the Father. He faithfully underwent temptation and suffered terribly, never giving in. He faithfully went to Gethsemane. He faithfully yielded his hands to the nails that were driven through them so that he would go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And he faithfully became sin for us, and now he faithfully intercedes for us. Jesus is a bigger deal than Moses. Jesus is a bigger deal than anything else that we could put our trust in. And we look here as the passage goes on, it unpacks for us more about Christ. Certainly there's a lot we could unpack about Christ, but this particular passage says that Jesus is the builder. So for Jesus has been counted worthy in verse 3, of more glory than Moses and much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses because he's the builder of the house. See, Moses, in all the things, all the great things that Moses did, He was still part of God's people. He was part of the house of God. But Jesus is the builder of the house. And in the modern day, we we don't often get kind of the significance of that because most of the time we don't 
We don't have a clue who the builder of, of buildings are. Like think of the three tallest buildings you know of in the United States. This is not a, this is not a, a quiz. There's no prizes if you can't name one. But I bet you couldn't name a single builder of those buildings. Probably not. Now, in this culture, when this was written, the, in the first century, the builder was more important than the building. Now, on rare occasions, there sometimes are builders that you know the name. Some of you might know the name Frank Lloyd Wright. He was an architect. It's actually been said of him when people made bigger deals about his building than him, he, he let them know. There are two or three of the houses that he designed in our area. And wherever you go, places that he has built, they're more expensive than the other houses of the same size and age on the block. Why? Because his name is attached to it, because he was the builder. But Jesus is the builder of all things. So look again at verse 4. For every house is built by someone. The builder of all things is God. Now it says the builder of all things is God, right? But we also learned early on in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the one that created all things. It's pointing us to the fact of the Trinity, that mystery of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So, so they're three in one, and we don't have time to unpack that whole mystery, but Jesus is the one who is the builder of all things, not just a building, but of all things. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to be aware of that. The builder of all things. So when you get to take a moment, maybe you're in one of the parks around here. I got to be with my kids this weekend. We spent some time, we went sledding, and we just kind of spent some time looking across the lake and just kind of being in awe of God's creation. Builder of all of that. Jesus was the creator of all of that. Consider that, brothers and sisters. Jesus is greater. He's the builder. Moses was part of the house. But also in this passage, we learn about the building. Because we are the house that Jesus is building. Look at verse 6. So it says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. And we are his house. We are God's house. He dwells among us. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 2 Corinthians 6, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then thirdly, 1 Peter 2, 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, Moses, he led in the construction of the tabernacle, the big tent that they put up wherever they went, and that's where they met with God, later to be replaced by the temple that happened in Jerusalem. But we are the house. 
That's why it's so important to be with God's people. That's why it's so important to walk patiently with God's people. That's why we don't want to tear down God's people because we are each part of the house. We're an integral part of the house. And that's important. And Jesus is the one who is building his church. He didn't build this structure. He's building the people who are are in the structure right now that we meet in. So we are the house that Jesus is building. But here's the significance as we look back at verses 5 and 6. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. Even though in the original, when, if if you are reading this in the original language, the word used here for servant isn't just your common everyday servant who was making uh, the least. This was actually a significant servant. This was uh, denoted as someone who was honored far above all other servants in the household someone who held a high position of nobility or authority. So when he's referencing Moses, he's like, yeah, he held a really high position in this household. But he was still a servant. Jesus is the son. When you think about in a kingdom, when the king uh, hands over the kingdom to his son, what what kind of authority does he have as opposed to the servants that come and help, right? The servants have a measure of authority that they might be given in certain aspects of things, but they don't have power. They, don't, they can't speak and send the soldiers out to war. They can't speak a decree and have it be so. And the writer wants us to stop and go, wait, as big as Moses was, all the things that Moses did. He was just a servant. Jesus is the son. He's the son. And if you've never trusted in Christ, trust in the son, not in a form of religion, but come to him humbly and confess your sins to him and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. He is the son of God. He's not some story. He's the son of God who's come and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And I'd encourage you, I'd exhort you to trust in Christ if you haven't trusted in Christ because he's the son and he's the one that we hold on to. Look at verse six again. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence, and our boasting in our hope. There's a call for us to persevere. There's a call for us to persevere, to hold fast. The writer started at the beginning of the chapter by saying, consider Jesus. He's not, he's not saying, again, he's not saying, well, just ponder. You know, consider Jesus. Ponder that a little bit. Maybe while you're drinking your coffee or You know, you're in your car driving somewhere. No, that word is telling us, keep on applying your mind to this truth unceasingly. 
Like, have a focus. So keep on applying your mind to this truth unceasingly. So don't stop applying this truth to your mind and apply it to your life. That's what that word consider means. Don't just ponder it. Keep thinking on it, mulling it over. And then he, he adds to it by saying, hold fast. Don't let go of it. Contemplate his sufficiency. Contemplate his priesthood. Contemplate that he's the great apostle sent by God for our salvation. Contemplate the fact that he's the master architect. Contemplate all these things that we've learned about in the first two chapters of this book. Draw your courage and confidence and hope from Christ. So how do we do that? How do we fix our minds? Well, I can think about Caleb and Joshua from the book of Numbers. Caleb and Joshua illustrate the attitude that's talked about here. We just talked about Caleb and Joshua. They're the ones that had faith to go into the promised land when the others said no, and so they didn't end up going. Then they had to wander for 40 years, but they had faith to go. And they were, they were given the privilege to outlive everyone else to go into the promised land. Why? Because they had confidence in God's word that they would one day enter into Canaan while others were experiencing sorrow and death and discouragement and disappointment. Caleb and Joshua rejoiced with confidence and hope because they held it out. They believed God to be who he said he would be and they were ready to go into the promised land, but they had to wait. And if we were to open up the book of Joshua right now, they came and they conquered the land. How did they get from having to wait all that time and then still have that? They continued to focus on who God is. And so we need to fix our minds. It starts with having a desire. So having a desire. One, uh, Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There's such a picture of like, Lord, I, I want to be in your presence. Like starting there, have that desire. Come and ask. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul has the same flavor calling us, have that desire, friends. Have that desire. Then we want to concentrate. Prioritize Christ in your thoughts or renew your mind. You've heard that concept, studied that concept in the New Testament, renew your mind. Isaac Newton said, the key to understanding was, I keep it before me. Us holding on isn't passive. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat that had to rock in the seas or been outside when it's just crazy windy and you feel like it's going to blow you over. You have to hold on so you don't fall off. Or maybe you've ridden in the back of a pickup truck with someone who doesn't seem to want to slow down and you've had to hold on. It's an active, it's, it's something that you have to be active doing. So we want to concentrate, 
Colossians 3 says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why are we reading the Bible together? Because we want to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. It takes discipline. So certainly we have to have a desire. We need to be, have concentration and focus. We need to have discipline like an athlete. Whether you like exercise or not, you can appreciate it. Athletes have to have discipline to do what they do. When you watch the Olympics, they don't tell stories of people who sit on the couch and eat bonbons, Right? They're talking about, yeah, I didn't eat sweets for four years. And I got up at 4 a.m. to exercise and swim and do, yeah. Even the, the men and women that lose are doing that at the Olympics. It requires discipline to stay focused. And it requires time. True reflection does not happen without time. Kent Hughes said, no one can see the beauty of the country as he hurries through it on the interstate. It is only when we sit still and gaze that the landscape fills our souls. If you say, well, you know, I'm I'm really not I'm really not getting much out of the Bible. It's just really hard for me to read through. You know, there's so many things in that Bible reading plan that I have to read, and I'm just like exhausted getting through it. Slow down. Just pick one aspect of that plan and and go slow. Read it. Reread it. Write in a notebook or a journal about it. Take your time. Let it kind of trickle down into your soul. Come back to it the next day and read it again. Put it on a note card if something sticks out to you and slap it on the sink right where you do the dishes or on the mirror in your bathroom so that you see it. Chew on it. It takes time holding on. And fifthly, I think holding on it requires community. When I think things like they're flying out of control, I mean, we're, we're in a household. We're in a household of faith. We fix our mind together in community. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It requires a diligent effort to hold on. And sometimes we don't feel like we can hold on. We need others to help us to hold on. I need others to help me to hold on. There's times when I get discouraged and there's a list of individuals I would call or I go to my small group and say, I just, I'm ready to quit. I'm done. And they help me to hold on. Now, even though we went through, what does this look like practically to hold on? Because it looks like something. It does require effort for us. I want to be clear. That effort is not what earns you salvation. 
That's not what earns you favor with God. This effort that we talked about is what we do to hold on, but what Jesus did on the cross was absolutely complete. He said, it is finished. Do not, do not confuse your efforts with your salvation. Your salvation is finished because of what Jesus has done. And don't think that your efforts, well, that's, that's the one thing that's going to keep me. I know the, the Bible says, well, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast. Well, if indeed, what does that mean? If we can't, if we don't hold on? Well, yeah, I think if we don't hold on, we aren't found. But, but those who are found in Christ do hold on. John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my, the father's hands. I and the father are one. So even though we're doing holding on, we're being held on to. Do I fully understand that mystery? I don't. But I know I've seen the effects of saints who have not held on, who've not put Jesus and considered Jesus. But as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, so we turn our eyes upon Jesus, I've seen in my life, I've seen in the lives of others, this holding on isn't as hard as it is maybe when we first start to do it. We first consider it kind of feels like, oh, I got to hold on. It's all, I'm just going to reach out because as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, we start to remove distractions in our lives because of the value that we have of Christ. As we see Christ more and more, we do less and less of the things that distract us. That's why the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full at his wonderful face, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why do they grow dim? Because you're considering Christ. That's what we're doing reading this whole book. Because Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than Moses, as great as he was. And in closing, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Napoleon, George Patton, all had this aura of invincibility that produced undaunted courage in the hearts of those who saw them amidst the fray of battle. Even Napoleon, who was a, a mili, mili, one of military history's greatest conquerors, used to have his generals come into his tent and look into his eyes before they went out to lead the troops into battle. Because he knew if he looked them in the eyes, it would spur something else in them to go and to be courageous and brave. But Napoleon and the others were ultimately defeated. They ultimately died. But Christ is the victor over every foe. When he went to the grave, even death became his captive. And now he lives and he reigns forever, placing every enemy under his feet. So let's fix our eyes on him. Let's fix our eyes on him. And even, even going through this today. It's like, I feel like we hear that all the time. 
You're going to continue to hear that all the time as we study this text or as you're part of this family because we need to fix our eyes on Jesus because we get distracted. I get distracted. Even this morning in prayer, as I'm at the prayer meeting before church, I'm aware of the distractions that are going on or the temptations that I'm experiencing or the challenge that I'm facing personally in my life. And I'm reminded, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope in him. Now, normally I pray at this point, but we're going to transition and hold fast because as of late, we have been reading a creed together. We've been reading a creed together that reminds us of this confidence and hope that we have in Christ. So why don't we read this creed together again? This creed starts out with this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that creed, as that creed reminds us of so much truth that's found in the text of scripture because that's where we learn about you as we study your word. And I pray right now, Father, for us, for those who are at home or that are here, those that are in the gym, that we would never become too familiar with Christ. That we would never say, well, I've, I've already learned that. Would we hold fast our confession? Would we hold fast this amazing truths about Christ? Lord, would you remind us again and again and again as we read the scriptures together, remind us again and again and again about your plan to bring Christ on the scene and about your saving us by sending Jesus to the cross. Remind us again of how powerful Jesus is.
Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Why don't we stand and sing in response? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.